Welcome to the Real Life Diabetes Podcast. My name is Amber Kluwer, and I've lived with type 1 diabetes for almost four decades and enjoy sharing my story and those of other people living their best life with this disease. Today's guest, Patricia Dacre, changed her diabetes denial into a thriving career, helping others living with this disease and beyond. Patricia really opened my eyes when she said, my number one coping skills were denial and avoidance. That statement sums up this episode. But before we dive in, I have a few quick announcements. Number one, the Diabetes Daily Grind is a nonprofit organization. Funds raised help keep the website, podcast, and advocacy efforts afloat. It's easy. Just click the donate link in the show notes. Number two, my affiliate and resources page feature reputable brands and services that make life with diabetes a more pleasant one. You can find all the deals at diabetesdailygrind.com. And finally, stay engaged. Love, like, share, and comment on all things social media. Sign up for the e-newsletter, leave an iTunes review, subscribe to my YouTube channel, and click on the Amazon banner on the website before ordering. It doesn't cost you a thing and throws a little change my way. All right, let's get started. All right. Welcome, Patricia, to the Real Life Diabetes Podcast. I'm so happy to finally get to interview. We connected on LinkedIn, and I start most of my interviews with, tell me a little bit about your diagnosis story. Awesome. Well, first of all, thank you, Amber, for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So my story, I was diagnosed as an adult. I was 26 years old. I was an RN registered nurse. I worked in a level one trauma center, worked nights, worked a lot of crazy hours, and I was tired. I had a lot of thirst and urination, but I thought it was because I was busy and didn't have time and working too much. Lost a little weight. Certainly didn't. That didn't bother me. (laughs) Um, Right. And so really it was the fatigue that was my first indication and what made me sought treatment. When my PCP happened to come in one night and I'm like, man, I am just tired. I think I have chronic fatigue or Epstein-Barr or something, right? There's a longer story than that, but that led me to a fasting blood sugar of 140 back in, this was in 1991. So he's like, hey, when you're in the ER sometime, check your glucose after you eat. Well, it was 300, right? I'm like, oh, not having that. So like any good nurse, I starved myself and exercised to make the numbers be right, you know, avoidance, you know, and denial the whole time. In retrospect, I had a weird virus about three months. I went to work one day with this weird rash on my torso Hmm. and they like, you probably have chicken pox. You need to go home. And I'm like, Oh, it can't be chicken pox. I had it as a kid. Yeah. I've been around a million patients with it. And so anyway, they're like, whatever it is, you're probably contagious, go home. And I did. And I felt crappy for a day or two and it went away. So it never proliferated into any chicken pox or anything. But that's the only thing. And so they think maybe it was a Coxsackie virus I got from a patient. And uh-huh. I don't know, but that's what we, you know, if I have to tell the story, that's what I think triggered my immune response. Okay. And let me, so you have no family history. This is crazy. So I'm one of seven. I have about 40 cousins. My daughter's the 19th grandchild. We have 27 oh. great grandchildren. <laughs> Like big family. And there's not a type one or type two in the bunch anywhere. Wow. So, and that's so fascinating to me. It's terrible, but because now we are recognizing through science, it's not just, I mean, with so many conspiracy theories there and stress viruses and the combination of course can do that. So how, if you don't mind me asking, how old were you? I was 26. 
So, and stress was a key player. So I was again, level one trauma center, working nights, not sleeping. I had just bought my first home. I had a new boyfriend. I was, you know, on the weekends, we're all going out, you know, just a lot of stuff, right? Like not healthy lifestyle. And even when I saw my PCPs, like, okay, go get some sleep, eat a square meal, not the cafeteria, (laughs) not not the vending machine. And, and yeah, that was how it started. But yeah, I was definitely stressed. I'm sure my body was like had enough and yeah. the virus and, you know, it shut down, the right. attacked itself. I mean, yeah. I look at it. Well, yep. and one of the things too, in reading some stuff about you is in, so you're a nurse, you're used to taking care of other people. Now you're like, okay, wow, I've got to do this for myself. And there was yeah. maybe a sense of denial. Oh, yes. Yes. Talk so, about um, that. Like, what did that look like? Yeah. So I didn't want to be one of them. So I was, you know, imagine me at triage, people coming in. And so my background before I was in the ER, I was in medical ICU and then on the floor for like a year. So I saw diabetes all day, every day, all the time. Um, I saw people in DKA, I treated people in DKA, people with um, amputations, heart attacks, all of it. It was not me. And I did not want to be them. Right. So I was on this side. And so it's, it's an irony. One of my best friends was a nurse I worked with and she was type one. And she would be like, oh, and she'd tell me the stories. I'm like, yeah, can't hear it. Not that, right? <laughs> and, you know, I, I'm a recovering, I'll say this, I'm a recovering perfectionist. And every time I checked my blood sugar and it wasn't perfect because I was a nurse, I knew better. Mm-hmm. I should know. I knew the pathophysio. I knew all the stuff. It was really hard to, to see it happen and not be able to explain it or fix it, right? Oh, so being on that other side of like, and then I think of patients that would come in and Again, this is kind of the clinical training of if you do A, B, C, and D, your blood sugar will be fine. Therefore, <laughs> right? If your blood sugar is not fine, you must have not done A, B, C, or D, right? There's that, especially, you know, 30 years ago in healthcare. Shame. Shame and non-compliance, like you did something wrong. Yeah. And you were trained almost in that aspect. Like they need to do this. You need to tell them all the bad things. You need to help people understand and then they will change. But mm. when it happened to me, it you know, I, I couldn't, I, even though I did my best, I couldn't make the numbers always be what I wanted, which was really, I wanted off. I, I mean, that's the point where about three years in, I was done. I can't keep playing this game. I can't win. I didn't ask for it. Didn't want it. Don't want to be here. You know, well, and we're going to get into some of the tools that you used and some yeah. of the ser- soul searching that you did. Cause I think that's very important. And I say from my own experience, just being judged by a number since the age of eight. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, it is really tough because you're either good or bad. Now, my parents never made me feel that way, but I knew when I got my A1C back, if it wasn't good, I was killing myself. I mean, it was a dissonance. I knew that right off the bat. And I am happy to hear and sad at the same time to hear you say, we need to shift that because the medical community is doing the best that they can with the information that's been given to them. So compassion, wouldn't you say, is probably one of the most important things that they need to learn. It is, if we want to go there really quickly, compassion is the key. It is yeah. the key to all of this. A couple of stories I could tell you. One was my own journey to compassion. Yeah. So I am deathly afraid of snakes. I hate snakes. I don't like snakes. They creep me out. And basically diabetes was like my doctor, the, you know, the healthcare system's like, here's a snake. Take care of it. Feed it this way. Do this. Put it this way. Here's your rules. You'll be yeah. fine. Come see me in a month, right? I'm like, I don't want this thing. And literally I went to counseling and during that time, I'm just now learning it was compassion, but in my head back then, 
I changed my story. And so instead of diabetes being a snake that I hated and would jump out of nowhere and bite me and hurt me and could kill me, diabetes became this child of myself, this inner part Mm -hmm. that I love. And I love her and I take care of her and I do the right things for her. And that's always been how I, I could, you know, my nursey part, my mom part maybe came on, but that was, I'm learning now as compassion, but that's how I made it okay. Mm. And that's how I started living without hating a part of my life because hating a part of your life is a huge burden. It's horrible. It colors everything. And so I found a lot of healing and changing that narrative. And again, all all these years later, it's compassion, right? I I helped myself. Uh, Okay. So the diagnosis at age 26, what roughly what age were you when you got to that realization? Well, probably three years later. So, you know, I was a good ER nurse. I was tough. I I got this. I can handle it. I bottled my emotions. I acted like I was fine. I laughed it off. I tried perfection. I tried ignoring it. I mean, I did all the things. And like I said, I remember getting to this place like I went off. I I didn't even know what the words were through through a series of connections of friends like, hey, I'm seeing this person you should go talk to her. I'm like, it's diabetes. <laughs> like, why would I need to talk to a therapist? You know? Right. And uh, the best thing I ever did. So I learned it wasn't diabetes. That was my problem. It was how I coped. Yeah. And my coping number one skill was denial and avoidance, right? Like, not happening. And so as, as I kind of dove in deeper, I actually realized there was grief going on. Like grief, like nobody talked about that. And it was because I also had some unresolved grief. Um, my dad died when I was 13. And so some of that bubbled up during the time, but there were so many parallels, right? So grief, the first one is denial. Not me, this isn't mm-hmm. happening, yeah. right? And then it's that anger. Why me? Who did this? I'm getting a second opinion. Whose fault is it? Yeah. That's sort of thing. And there's bargaining where you start trying it on. Well, I'll eat that, but not that. I'll do this, but not that. Right. And then there's this depression where you're like, oh my goodness, it's not going away. It's here. This is, this is me. This is what I got now. And when you, when I was able to see that, I found this acceptance and this peace of not wanting my life to be different, of learning that I still had value, purpose, meaning, and diabetes. Right. And so I just, it was grief. Like it was so glaringly obvious. And you look at, how much depression and diabetes are linked together. Absolutely. And you know, how much of that is people who are just stuck, stuck in unresolved grief. I think if if someone dies, right, such compassion, we're very tolerant of outbursts of tears. We offer them food, we comfort them, right? We, we, We pull them in. You get diabetes and it's like, what's your blood sugar? What are you doing? What happened? Can you eat that? Like there's this sort of attack. And so I think it's hard to grieve. You don't have that compassion often. And you'll probably get, you know, different people get it different ways, but I don't think it's anything the medical community tells you might happen, Mm. right? It's not an expectation. There's very little, you know, it's always diet, exercise, medicine, you know, the classics, which which we need. We need all that. And it's an and. And we need to understand that this is a huge emotional burden. It's hard. It's hard stuff. Well, um, that's so well said. Like, and I mean, I've been through therapy in and out my whole life. In high school, it was about dumb stuff like boys and mean girls. (laughs) But only in my adulthood, especially in the past, I would say 10 years, my therapist really brought diabetes to the forefront and made that a part of the conversation. And I did a mental health retreat where we discussed all the things that we just talked about. And I didn't realize that the demon or the 
hatred in the room was because of diabetes, because I never right. addressed it yeah. as a part of my life. I just did what was to- told of me. Yeah. You know, I did what I was asking any of you. And through that realization, it's been the most life-changing thing I've ever yeah. been through in my life. Yeah. And so that's why I really like your story is because you're addressing it as an adult, as a child, that's a totally different ball game, but you thankfully had the mindset, the tools, the drive and whatnot to, to take it to the next level. So yeah. one of the things that I loved about, and you've already touched on it, the fact that you have a, you're a recovering perfectionist. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I get it in a type A personality because it's like, da, 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 da. you know, you put everything in a row and you expect X outcome. Right. Well, we, as you said, diabetes doesn't work that way. It doesn't play that way. <laughs> so how did you flip the switch from that mentality? Was it through therapy or what other tools did you use? Well, yeah. And just, I had to realize here, here's a, um, I don't know exactly when it happened, but one of the, the things that I believe in now is we, as a, as a nurse, we explain things very lin- linearly. Sure. Diet, exercise, medicine equals glucose. Very one, two, three. Yeah. And the truth is it's a system. It's a system that's always evolving and adapting. It's not three factors. It's 45 factors that are hormonal, you know, environmental, all these different things. And so perfectionism was not helping me. And so <laughs> I guess I, I don't know exactly how it came, but I came up with this idea of persistence. Mm-hmm. So, and I tie it to baseball, right? It's like a, an RB or your batting average. So I get up to bat every day, hundred percent of the time. Some days I swing better than others. Some days I don't swing and I hit a home run, you know, and it just happens. And other days I try my best and I'm I'm fouling out. Yeah. But I persistently play the game and that's a game I can win. I can keep showing up every day and playing. I can't hit a home run every day. And so I've given myself that grace to, and, and it makes it easier to keep doing it because I don't fail so much. I think it was in the failing that I got tired of always failing, right? Nobody likes to fail. Right. And 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 again, healthcare is so, you don't see it, but then when you do, you can't turn it off. So in electronic medical records, which I have background in that as well, you start with a problem list. A patient yeah. is a list of problems. That's what you are to, you know, yeah. not the people in medical and in, in healthcare, but just the system. You're a list of problems. Problems have to be dealt with. And it's just not humanistic, right? But mm. So treating yourself like a problem, there's no perfection in that. Right. And so finding this way to just stay motivated to keep trying because I benefit. And it was very selfish and self-full to do it for me and not for because the doctor said so. You know, and again, you go in, you see the doctor, and their job is to find your problems and they'll look at your glucose logs and they always find the bad ones. Mm. And then they want to know what happened. Well, <laughs> they're they're trying to solve a puzzle, right? Like, I don't know, it was three weeks ago on Thursday at two o'clock. <laughs> You know, I, I don't remember, but I, I corrected it. Right. You know? And so this idea that when you go to a doctor, if he's not helping you with a problem, he feels not valued. Right. That's his goal to fix your problems. And so you become something to be fixed. And to show progress yes. in your diabetes management, or at least stability if you're in a good space. Yeah. And often the solution is feeling good in here first. So you can keep doing the work because it's hard. So you can stay engaged. So you can keep getting up to bat and swinging again, right? I think that's, that's again, very well said. And I just think about um, the Chickasaw Nation, which is a, a tribal community here in yeah, Oklahoma. I, I and them a little bit, yeah. They're incredible. And I remember touring the facility. And I'm saying this because of what you were just mentioning is when somebody's diagnosed with diabetes, period, you get to see like seven different specialists in your first visit. 
So they address mental health, health, podiatry, dentistry, everything you can think of so that you get a maybe just a little bit of information to right. help you get to your next appointment or whatever that looks like. And then the resources in between. Right. So I've got a question out of my normal schedule right now, but so two questions I ask every single guest, one of which is, do you feel like you received proper medical care and information upon diagnosis? That's kind of a loaded question because you were in the medical community. Yeah. But um, yeah. So the answer is no. And I fought like the devil to get it right. So okay. I, would, you know, I, a, a little story when I, when I first went on a pump, I never called my doctor hardly ever. I saw him. He told me this stuff. I, I gave my first insulin injection alone because they wanted to send me to a class and my blood sugar. I'm like, <laughs> if I was working last night and you gave me a verbal order to give someone insulin, you wouldn't have thought a thing about it. 12 hours later, I'm in your office and you want me to go have anyway. So, so I gave yeah. my own insulin shot because I'm like, I'm not waiting another week. I'm exhausted. Like I'm ready to bring it. I'm ready yeah. to feel yeah. better. Right. I know how to draw it up and inject it. I can do that. But when I was getting ready to go on a pump several years later, I had a question. I was taking long acting insulin and we were going to go on a pump and I wasn't sure, do I not take my long acting yeah. before? So I kept calling his office, I kept calling his office. And the, the receptionist was like, we'll talk to you about it on Friday. I'm like, no, 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 but I need to know before. And she, I never connected with him. He never called me back. So I didn't take it. Right. Cause I'm like, yeah. I lived alone at the time. I'm like, I don't want to go home with long acting insulin on board and then putting a new pump in. And I yeah. had a healthy fear of insulin for my nursing career anyway, but I stopped seeing him after that. I said, I, I got to trust that you're going to, I don't call. I'm not a, one of those patients that are on the phone all the time. I've yeah. never called him before. And um, if you can't call me back the day before I go on an insulin pump with a question, you can't be my doctor. And I've had that conversation with many, many providers. <laughs> like, well, and thank God you had a, you had a, the courage to say something like that. Like well, the average yeah. person who's not in the medical world, they're just gonna be like, well, I guess I'm just going to have to. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like that's yeah. unacceptable. Yeah. yeah. And so I, that the cool thing, I guess the grace I have is being a nurse. I see providers as people, they're colleagues, you know, they're, they're, they're people just like you and me. I don't have that God complex. You know, I yeah. can ask them a question. I'm a, and that's one, one thing I really try to work with people about is you have every right to ask, to know it's your body. You have to live with it 24 right. seven. They see you three, four times a year. You don't owe them anything. And, and it really is, you have to advocate for yourself. And so we all have that gut feeling hmm. that we, we, we don't believe it. Oh, yeah. well, you know, maybe I'm overreacting. Maybe I should wait. He's a doctor, right? So our gut's pretty smart, right? Our gut is so smart. But yes, I've had so many instances where I'll tell you the last time I've got a couple endo endocrinology stories, but I had one lady and I would go in and it was every three months. They wouldn't give me a prescription unless I went all this oh, yeah. crazy. I'm like, I'm, it's not like I'm not going to need it or I'm going to abuse it, right? Like, it, why? Right. Well, Anyways, I, I could talk on that all day long, but the nurse practitioner I saw, I was between insurance because I was changing jobs. And so I had to pay cash for that visit, $135. And she goes in, they start asking me about Ebola screening questions. I'm like, that I, I'll answer that, but me first. Like yeah. I have these questions. I know that you have to ask all this stuff for your medical records, but I'm not paying my $135 for your medical records. I don't want to be ugly, <laughs> but... Yes. Right. So, so anyway, I flipped the switch on her and I said, I need to know what's new for type one. And I had already gone through some stuff with them where I was evaluating a different pump 
And I'm like, hey, what do your patients say about A versus B? Oh, we can't give you that information. It's not fair to the vendors. I'm like, oh, right. So I'd already had some sort of pushback. But anyway, I said, I really want to know what's, what's coming down the pike in type one. What's new? What's different? What's the tech? What have you heard at conferences? Right. And she said this to me. You know, I haven't thought about type one very much. I've been on vacation and I don't have anything to tell you. And I thought, why am I here? Why am I paying to be here? Yeah. And so I answered her questions and I am not going back. And the funny thing was after I switched to a different doctor, I got a bill from their office. So in medical records, you now get um, reimbursement (laughs) for clinical quality measures. So they got paid $150 for my data, but because I had switched providers, they got denied the claim. And so they asked me to pay it. Oh my gosh. Like, no, 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 no. But yeah, so there's this whole, it's a system and it functions that way. And the place I'm at now with providers is I have to, I know what I need from them. I know what, what yeah. I know what the, what the boundaries are and I don't have expectations outside of that. I think that's well said, especially for the people that are not in the medical industry, because we need to hear more voices like this, because I'm a patient advocate and our voice matters and we should drive the conversation. I mean, it's one of those, like, it's insane to me. Two things I want to touch on. So when you were first diagnosed, 91, you said, what I want to talk about the beginning regimen that you were put on and how it evolved. And if you don't mind discussing what insulin pumps you've used or what you have found to be your best diabetes management. Yep. So I started, if I can remember back that far on NPH and regular. Cloudy and clear. Yep. Yes. And I worked nights. So every other day, or when I switched from days to nights, I had to change my NPH dose, right? So it peaked at what, six hours if if memory serves. So if I was working nights, if I was going in at 7P, I had to take it at the night. It it was a hot mess. Yeah. And I did it. And I'm a big, the other part about me, my nurse brain, I check my blood sugar. I got to know the number. I just do like, it's my hang up. And back then I wrote it down. I had a log. We didn't have all the tech, but I created a log. I had to know. I mean, and it was so ingrained in my nurse brain. You do those sort of things, you write it down. Right. So I had a lot of information. And so I did that for a while. Ultra Lente came out, which was like a slower, long acting. And so I really quickly jumped on that and did MDI. So every firefighter and doctor in our ER saw me stabbing because if I wanted to eat, I would take insulin. I was totally like, that's what your pancreas does. I can do that. I'm not going to starve. I'm not going to yeah. restrict myself so much. And people just thought I was crazy because I would, you know, eat a cookie. And it's like, if they saw me eat a baked potato, no one cared. But if I ate a cookie, they were like, ah. <laughs> right? same dose. But so I quickly got on MDI. That worked really, really well. Yeah. I, the only downside of that was I had the dosing back then. I remember I had to take a shot at 7A and 7P which oh, meant yeah. I had to be up at 7A and 7P, Yep. right? So whatever the times were. And that was kind of a hardship with my hours. So in 1999, Nicole Johnson was Miss America. Oh, yeah. I've interviewed Nicole. Oh my gosh, that's yeah. so cool. Tell her I said hi. Well, she inspired <laughs> me. So um, I was single at the time. I'm like, who's going to want to date somebody with tech hanging off of her? You know, that whole thing. <laughs> so afraid. But I saw her do it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, she got up there and just didn't care. And I remembered something my mom told me a long time ago. She said when I was diagnosed and I didn't, we didn't even live in the same state. So I was by myself. I lived alone when I was diagnosed, but she said, if it's not a big deal to you, it's not going to be a big deal to others. Like the more you hide it and make it a secret and make it something that people 
whisper about. And so Nicole Johnson inspired me. And so Medtronic was my first pump. I think it was the only one around almost yeah. back then. And I was on Medtronic until this year. So I, I've been on several iterations of it. Was the last one 670G? No. So my whole coaching. So in 19, in 2017, I guess I left corporate America to pursue my coaching and to yeah. do this passion project, if you will. And so I didn't have corporate insurance anymore. And so mm-hmm. I had a, a lot of different things to have coverage, but none of them covered my pump. So I, mm-hmm. I don't want to forget the names. It was, um, it's the one before the 670G. It was Paradigm. 50, 550 or something. I don't know. Maybe. So I had that one and I'm like, I'm just going to roll with this till it dies. Yeah. Um, and I did, and it was out of warranty. And I just happened to the previous pump when it ran out of warranty and I had to get a new one, I just paid for it and kept it because I had had a couple pump failures and it was like easier to flip back to a pump than try to go on injections when you had to ship it overnight and all that. Yeah. So I had a backup pump. And so until this year, I was on this backup pump that was like, Nobody even knew it. It was before Paradigm. It was so old, so old. But, you know, it was like, I figured out how to make it work with yeah. the insurance, the money, the finances, all the stuff I had. And so I did during that time, I don't even know. I, I tried the Medtronic. It was the sensor, the CGM, but it oh, was- yeah. The, I can't think of the name. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It was a hot mess. I couldn't do it. It just kept me up all night. And I run pretty low, not pretty low, but I'm just- I'm tight. I don't like to, you know, I don't like yeah. to 70 for me is fine. I'm, you know, I'm cooking with gas at 70. I'm fine unless I'm yeah. And so all night long, I'm getting woken up because it's, you know, saying you're in critical. Yeah. Right. Oh, it was horrible. So actually it made my A1C worse because I was stressed. I was not getting, I just, I was chasing this. Yeah. Pump, the thing. So I didn't do it. So this year um, with the insurance I'm on now, I was able to get on Omnipod. Mm. So I just started that um, on my, I did a blog about it. Are you doing the dash or are you doing the five? Well, the insurance, I'm on Obamacare right now because that's the plan I'm on. And they don't approve the five, just the dash. And so I love it. It's really cool. I'm still freaking out because for 20 years, I've had to like, you know, not get the thing wet. It's almost like this post-traumatic <laughs> stress of, ah, yes. right? Like, so I really am enjoying it. I'm also right now in a clinical trial for ever since. Oh, yeah. So um, again, you know, here, here's the box they want me to be in. And I'm like, eh, I don't want to do that. So I'm looking for other avenues to get what I need to get, however I need to get it. And so this trial became available. So I'm in the, the first six months, I'm just doing finger sticks, recording everything, getting yeah. baseline data. So in December, I'll get an implantable ever since. We'll see how it goes. Oh, there's so many things with this conversation. Another whole podcast, honestly. Hey, because- after 38 plus years of living with type one and being on MDI, multiple daily injections, right. um, uh, I'm considering an insulin pump. Oh, I love it. I love and it. I'm terrified. I will need months of therapy literally just to get <laughs> over the fact. And like you said, when you're so accustomed to doing X, Y, and Z, you know, I I get up at 548 AM every single day to give my placebo shot. Right. That's like that. My that's a part of my daily clock. Yep. And not having to do that, I just don't know what I'm going to do with myself. Oh, hey. <laughs> I mean, it's like, yeah. Well, so you got to embrace change, right? So yes. change change is okay if you if you can baby step, right? So when, when yeah. we make change, you got to find what you're willing to do. What are you willing to do today, right? You start there with what. If you try to do something you're not willing to do, eh, you're not going to do it. That's but so the true. pump, it was life-changing for me. So I actually had two children at 39 and 41. So I was an old mama. It's perfect what I wanted to talk about. 
Great. Yeah, okay. You even brought that up. Yeah. So that's technically a geriatric oh, girl. high-risk yeah. pregnancy. Can I tell you a story? Yes. ER nurse, right? ER nurse. AMA in the ER vernacular is against medical advice. <laughs> it's, we said, you need to do this. We're like, yeah, I got to go home and take care of my dog. I'm leaving, right? Like, and you sign out AMA. So when I'm going to my OB-GYN doctor, who was a friend, I'd known her for a long time. I'm looking, you know, they leave the room and I'm looking at the chart. Back when we had a paper chart, right? I'm <laughs> seeing what all is in there. I'm being nosy. All over my chart, AMA, AMA, AMA. And finally, like my ego got the best of me. And I had to ask the nurse, like, I am checking my blood sugars like a crazy person. Like, I'll tell you that story in a sec, but what am I doing against medical advice, right? I'm like, I am like textbook picture perfect. Yeah. My A1Cs were five, four and five, six through my whole pregnancies. I was just a Nazi about everything. And she's like, oh, honey, it's not a, against medical advice. It's advanced maternal age. Ah! I was like, oh, I think I'd rather be non-compliant than old. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I was geriatric, high risk, all the things. Oh, wow. Okay, so two healthy babies. Mm-hmm. And A1Cs, that's incredible that your A1C was that. I mean, I just, it's just, yeah. you could so write a book about that. I wore, wore three watches okay. with alarms and I checked my blood sugar preconception during pregnancy and breastfeeding seven, nine, 11, one, three, five, seven, nine. And at three o'clock every morning, I just set alarms and I did it because I was so afraid of hurting that baby. So I, I was never more than two hours out of control. Like if it was hot, wow. right? So it was like hybrid CGM. I was just I was paranoid about it. So I'd be curious too. And I don't know that you can speak to this and I haven't done my research just immediately thinking about, you know, the, I don't know what the percentage is. I want to say 3% of children born from a female type one have the chance of having type one. Is that even a discussion with your family? Like, I mean, since you, I guess if it's not hereditary, why would it then? You know, so epigenetics, you know, you can flip on a gene. So maybe that happened with me or not. I I was going to be a mom. I just, it, it, it wasn't a fear I had, so it never got in my way. I'll put it that way. That's awesome. That is awesome. I know that um, like when I was diagnosed and I'll be short is that I was told I could never have children, you know, mm-hmm. I would die, blah, blah. And then you have still magnolias where if she dies, blah, blah, blah. And okay. so it's just like, you know, that's what you grew up with now in seeing and meeting so many women who've had many children or one child and everybody's healthy. And I just hope that the people that are listening and for the next, the current generation of newly diagnosed right. type ones, man, we can do anything. We yeah. really can. And Absolutely. with CGMs, there's no reason. Yeah, um, yeah. I just have that fear. So I, for whatever reason, the knowledge, and I'll call it a knowing, my intuition that I would be a mom was way stronger than any fear. And it just, it compelled me forward. It was my motivation. And it just wiped all the other stuff away. I can't even explain it other than tapping into your intrinsic truth. Yeah. It's very powerful. Okay. So this is a random question. And it's from a previous guest. I think it was episode 121. We talk about, and no one has ever in the medical community spoken to me about getting older as a female with diabetes. Let's talk about perimenopausal or menopause. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, shit has hit the fan and no one's ever talked to me about that. Even my OBGYN. So being in the medical world, I'm sure you knew, but did you, do you know? So um, there wasn't a lot of information. I didn't have, I, I will, I'll put it this way. Hormones influence blood sugar, <laughs> right? Like they do, whether it's stress hormones, right. you know, all the hormones, right? Sex hormones, all those things, cortisol, all that stuff impacts blood sugar. So nobody really talked to me about it, but I knew as you go through perimenopause, perimenopause is worse than menopause. Perimenopause is the winding down. It's the two or three years before where 
So when little girls start their period, it's kind of this crazy building up and, you know, and then it happens. We have the same sort of on the downside, the going down was harder than arriving in my case, because it's so variable, right? Because things are sometimes hormones are high, sometimes they're low. It's just much more fluctuate fluctuations as your body. So luckily being on a pump and testing a lot, I I just changed my basils. I, I just stayed kind of stayed in the moment and did what I needed to do to stay in check. And I also, I also just, this is my personal choice. I take hormones because I am postmenopausal. I remember in nursing school, one of the first things they said was incidence of cardiac disease goes up in women after menopause and that estrogen has a protective factor. So there's a ton of research, again, a whole nother blog, but my own personal choice as I looked through the risks, my risk for cardiac disease with diabetes is pretty high. So I'm going to I'm going to, and I don't take a ton, like it's protective. I take a protective dose to kind of keep things. I get it. That's yeah. Um, And I'm happy. I'm so happy that we're having these conversations now because I wish somebody would have had this conversation with me while I was in my thirties. I I never wanted children, but during childbearing age, you know, we can talk about what does that look like and where it's going to end up going through menopause at 45, you know? So yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's another thing because you usually go through menopause earlier. Right. Seven years. Like why seven years? Who knows? Right. It just, so those are some of those questions that I go, I I don't have the answer. That just is, it just (laughs) is. I accept it. Right. Okay. So two healthy children. And I want to just go back one step when you talked about like soul work and things like that, besides going to a therapist, because I, like I said, I've done mental health retreats. I do have done a ton of reading audiobooks. Is there anything in particular that you felt like was beneficial period in life. It doesn't necessarily have to be just about diabetes that maybe helped you along that journey. Yeah. Um, I think it was, again, it was some of the counseling, but it wasn't, I don't even like calling it mental health because I mental health on some aspect implies you're not healthy. Correct. It's normal. If you have the stuff, if like, if you didn't have emotional response to getting diabetes, you'd be a whack job. Yeah, like, exactly. You get diabetes, you should have this hardship and you should have to figure out how to process. My probably big aha moment was realizing my purpose. Mm -hmm. So my purpose is not to be a diabetic. I was not put on this earth for that. It's something I have. And I will say this and people just roll their eyes and they don't get it, but I love having diabetes. I do. It's given me more than it's ever taken away. It changed the course of my life. You know, it made me go figure things out about myself. It's stuff I have to do, but it's not, I don't hate, I don't hate it. It's not always comfortable. It's frustrating. But yeah. A, I, I, my life is not a mistake. This is not a mistake. I didn't do anything to deserve this, but it's been a great teacher. And that's kind of that soul is, it's weird to me that I'm from such a large family with no history. It's weird to me that I'm a nurse and I had all this perspective and insight, even kind of taking the next step. When I left bedside and did corporate work, I learned so many things about human behavior in corporate America, why people make decisions to buy, why people do what they do, interpersonal relationships, team building, all of those skills are exactly what we need in diabetes management. You know, why do you choose that over that? Same as a purchase decision. How do you get along with other people, team Mm -hmm. dynamics? How do you get along with family members, friends, coworkers, you know, all these different skills. And it all started coalescing, right? It started coming together. And it's like, this isn't a mistake. I just, I just can tell you that. And so getting in touch with your purpose, I really feel I was called to bring this message to the world, which is kind of weird. 
but it, it's, I can't put it down. I'll just put it that way. I, I thought, eh, I need to go do something else. I need to get a real job, you know, whatever, like, because coaching right now is still fringy holistic care. So talk briefly about holistic care. So a nurse coach, nursing, all the nursing stuff. So you have to be an RN, you have to have a bachelor's degree mm-hmm. and you go specialized training. And so it's about body, mind, spirit. So body got it down, you know, the medical community, we're a bunch of parts that stick together. We fix the parts, you know, we treat the stuff that's pretty there mind, you know, understanding emotions and that sort of stuff. But the spirit side of us that's there, it's the witness to everything we do. It's been there since the day you were born. Most of the cells that are you now weren't around then. So there's this aspect to self that is intrinsic and all three matter. And so it was, and it's sort of that, this inner wisdom, this knowing, this understanding of who you are, which it's not really to me religious, it's it's spiritual, but it's, it's um, right. And so those three things together make it all work. If you only try to deal with the mental aspect or the physical aspect, and you don't understand what your purpose and passion is, what, what makes you decide to get up every day? God, I hope it's not diabetes, right? That's not why you should get up every day. You do diabetes well, so you can do these other things, right? And so I don't know if I answered your question. I just You wanted- did. You absolutely <laughs> answered it. And I will say, because my friends, I mean, no one makes fun of me, but they have always said through my starting the Diabetes Daily Grind and the podcast is, Amber, you found your calling. This is it. Yeah, yeah. And if I didn't have diabetes, I wouldn't be sitting here having conversations like this. Yes. And the Mind, Body, Spirit, I've written a number of posts about this because yeah, I'm so happy I found it. You know, yeah. I found that path. And I'm hoping if you're listening, you know, everybody needs to find their own path straight up. And I found mine at the right time, just like you did. And right, right. further research is necessary as always. But one of the, and we'll end with this is, oh, well, two quick questions. One, I probably know the answer to this, but do you have access to healthy food that's fruits and vegetables within a two mile radius? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I have a garden in the backyard. So there you go. Okay. So I love gardening. Dirt's good. Dirt is healthy. <laughs> Dirt is healthy. So I'm really focusing on um, the food deserts and disparities and things like that. So you are not in that. Yeah. I'm thankfully. I'm, yeah. I'm in the suburbs. So that's, yeah. that's awesome. And then the, what I want to end with is you have taken your passion for living with type one diabetes and you talked about coaching. So tell me about what you do. And obviously we know what fuels it, but a little bit about your diabetes coaching. Well, so if you, I look at a lot of people online and they're selling their version of diabetes. And I think we all find our own. I don't have a prescriptive plan. I don't say eat this, do this, do this. I coach on five pillars and they're the five things to me that have been transformative. One is education. So you got it. You have to be educated and it never, never stops. That's the other thing. Like we have this idea that, oh, you get your diabetes education, you're done. No, 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 no. There's always new tech, new information, like it never, ever stops. And so that's one is we really have to do that on our own. The second step is emotions. We didn't talk about it today, but the idea of grief and there's actually trauma involved and those things dealing with some of that. So you understand why you feel like you, like you do, you're not crazy. It's normal. You just don't know how to deal with it. Right. So that awareness, the third one is motivation. Again, why are you doing this? And if, if you can't, that's how we learn, right? You know, I help people figure that out for themselves. So they're not exhausted. The fourth one is ownership. You got to stay, it's your body, your life, your stuff. You pay people for their advice and services, but they don't get to dictate to you. And so we work on those skills. 
And the fifth one is communication. Yeah. You have to be able to speak your truth. And it's really hard sometimes to say what you want to say all the time, but, and that's a skill. Communication is a skill. And a lot of those things I just mentioned, they weren't from nursing school, right? They were from corporate America and learning some of those things. And then woven through all that is this again, sort of idea of you're a whole person, mm-hmm. right? You you are whole and you're complete and you're worthy and you're able and you're good and you happen to have diabetes. And how do we find peace and safety? Because if you can't, if you're always anxious, right? That I guess I'll end on this note and this is not a popular sentiment in the diabetes community. I hate the thing of fighting against diabetes because fight or flight engages our sympathetic nervous system, mm-hmm. which puts you on the defensive. It makes you not able to connect, to learn. It's scary. Like the thought of fighting for anything for the rest of my life just sounds horrible. Peace and ease and acceptance and willingness to learn, comfort, compassion. I'd rather have that so people can really stay engaged, have the energy and resources to do what they need to do. And again, it's biologically supported. It's the parasympathetic side of your nervous system. So anyway, I could go off on that all day, but well, it's I all think wrapped up. Good. I have online services. I have an online course you can take. You just enroll and you can self-pace or you can work with me directly. So all of the links to what we just were talking about will be in the show notes. So please be sure to check them out. Yeah. And Patricia, I just want to say thank you for all that you're doing for the diabetes community yeah. and being honest, real, and raw about your life and helping mm-hmm. other people figure out what's going to be best for them. So I look forward to staying in touch and maybe some future projects together. I am all about it. I'd love to. Thank you. And thanks to everybody out there, all my diabetes out there listening. I love you much and you are good and worth it. Wow. Patricia's comment about hating a part of your life is a huge burden should really resonate with the diabetes community. I hope you think about that statement and know there are resources available to help. Before I wrap up, I have a few quick reminders. Number one, don't forget to visit my resources and affiliate page for killer discounts. If you'd like to join this list of reputable brands, just hit us up at Penelope at DiabetesDailyGrind.com for details. Number two, I know you're listening and thank you. So be kind and throw a little change my way. Funds raised help keep the website, podcast, and advocacy efforts afloat. All you have to do is click on the donate link in the show notes. And finally, I'm here for my diapeeps and the medical community. So feel free to contact me on any social media platform or directly at amber at diabetesdailygrind.com. Your continued support and love help keep the episodes coming. Cheers to the highs and lows, everyone. Yes, I'm-